0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco, this is Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio. Powered by the Wharton School. Here is your host,
1: Sam Brash. Hi, welcome to Bay Area Ventures on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Sam Brash, Uh, when I'm not here on the radio. I am a managing director with Kaiser Permanente's Venture Program. Uh, I am happily joined today by a co-host, special guest, uh, Amy Beltramundo, also a uh, managing director at KP Ventures.
2: Hey, Sam, thanks for having
1: me. Yeah, thanks for joining. Um, uh, We are broadcasting live today from the campus of the Wharton School here in San Francisco in downtown SF, right next door to Silicon Valley. Uh, Coming up on today's show. We've got a bunch of very exciting guests, as always. Uh, first hour, we're going to be talking to the leaders of Evidation Health. Uh, that's company CEO Deb Kilpatrick, as well as co-founder and president Christine Lemke. In the second hour of the show, we'll be talking to Anya Sheese. Anya is the co-founder and general, general partner excuse me, of Healthy Ventures. If you're joining us for the first time, Bay Area Ventures is all about the world of entrepreneurship, startups, and venture capital here in the San Francisco Bay Area. We broadcast live every Monday at 4 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, and re-air again throughout the week. And Our goal each week is to bring you the entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders from here in the Bay Area business community. And We ask them to share their insights and opinions on on what's going on here, the startups they're leading, the companies they're investing in, and the trends and developments that they see going on here in the Bay Area technology community as well as across the U.S. if you're an entrepreneur if they could run your own startup or if you're just interested in learning more about how people go about building companies uh, we'd love to hear from you you can reach out to us on email at businessradio at siriusxm.com you can also check out our website businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu for the full schedule uh, again as i mentioned I'm, I'm joined this first hour by my guests deb kilpatrick and christine lemke of Evidation health uh, Deb is the CEO and Christine is a co-founder and president of the company. Uh, I'll let them give you more details on it, but Evidation Health is a digital analytics company that works with healthcare giants to see if treatments are really working in the real life. Deb and Christine, thanks a lot for joining us.
3: Thanks, we're happy to be here.
1: Um, Christine, thanks for joining us as well.
3: <clears throat> thanks, happy
0: to be
1: here. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and Before we get started, I should say that Amy, my co-host here, who worked with me at Kaiser Permanente Adventures, also used to work with Deb and Christine, and so she's going to give us all the inside dirty secrets on That's what's going right. on at the company.
2: <laughs> inside <laughs> scoop.
1: <laughs> um, so let's just first get started and talking about what Evidation Health is and what, what you're trying to solve for with the company.
3: Sure. So I like to say that we're harnessing the power of people and the data they own and control outside clinic walls for the purposes of all kinds of interesting use cases in healthcare, the first one, and and perhaps most important one ultimately is is clinical research. And how can you revolutionize clinical research to be done outside clinic walls uh, to capture Really, and quantify the day to day behaviors of people that we know are driving health outcomes, but have really been previously not measurable and effectively invisible to the healthcare ecosystem for fifty years of evidence based medicine.
1: And when you say outside the clinic walls, you mean outside the hospitals and the doctors' offices, kind of where people are for, living their lives? correct, ok. right. in
3: in effect, trying to capture all that information that characterizes exactly how they are living their lives, <clears throat> right how much they're moving around in the world, how much they're, um, you know, what are the choices that they're making regarding diet, regarding nutrition? Um, What are their choices regarding exercise? What are their choices regarding uh, taking their meds or not taking their meds, right? They're making billions of choices, right, all along the way, and they're all affecting the way that products uh, that are manufactured for use in healthcare, such as drugs or devices, it's affecting the way they work or not, but we really have not been able to measure what that effect is or much less influence it. Um, and so what Evidation is trying to really do is is change that paradigm and incorporate those behaviors and all of that activity data and all of those real-life data streams um, into the, the equation, effectively, for how that is affecting health outcomes, both clinically and economically.
1: Okay. And so, and for those of us, you know, those are listeners who come from outside healthcare, maybe haven't had much exposure, can you remind us, traditionally, how have people been understanding the uh, – implications of new drugs or devices in clinical studies? You know, what, what is it they were doing previously that you guys are doing differently?
3: So historically, um, evidence-based medicine in the form of clinical trials was, was generally performed in academic medical centers um over the years as as healthcare expertise broadened outside of just urban settings um, you also had clinical trials being done in very large patient volume um, centers of excellence around the country and you would have these centers of excellence in all kinds of therapeutic areas from cancer to cardiovascular medicine and typically they would be the same types of settings over and over that clinical trials would be done which there's nothing wrong with that, except for your your a you're not capturing all of the people that don't go to those places for healthcare, um, and b you're also inherently biasing uh, participation in clinical trials by who walks the doors walks through the doors of those things and chooses to enroll. Um, it's, it's uh, historically required that you literally walk into a place and walk into an ecosystem. What we're trying to do is reverse that, right? We're trying to carry an ecosystem outside of the clinic into a patient's daily life that allows them to participate in clinical research in a way that we think is much more meaningful um, in terms of capturing how real life everyday behaviors are impacting health outcomes in research and in everyday medicine. And you guys just published a study, right? That was a clinical
2: trial that was done completely virtually. So no one ever showed up at a doctor's office at all, but got clinically meaningful information back.
0: Yeah, that's right. We we just published um, on a, an app that we evaluated called MetaSafe. We did that in partnership with Brigham and Women's Hospital, and and you're right. It, it was all done completely virtually. We sent out blood pressure monitors to folks. Um, we captured everything electronically. Uh, never once did someone visit a doctor uh, during the the study that we collected data from. But I think just to augment what Deb was saying, part of the um, so part of the innovation of the company is not just you know doing some of these things virtually, but historically outcomes have been measured by lab tests that you run, or imaging that you run, or you know a variety of other clinical um, measurements that are often done in in the doctor's office in order to figure out whether you had mobility after surgery or after you've had a cardiovascular event. It was a six-minute walk test at the doctor's office where they literally, with a stopwatch, would like watch you and time you and things like this. Well, we're carrying around these amazing sensors in our phone now. Some of us are wearing things like watches, um, another set of incredible sensors on a daily basis So it makes sense to me that you would start to measure some of these clinical outcomes differently in this new world where you had access to all of this marvelous information on a passive and continuous basis. Um, Now we could measure whether you were mobile or not by actually seeing whether you're mobile or not in in your daily life versus sort of an artificial test that might happen in front of a doctor. Um, We could see, you know, the way that you um, measure your blood pressure on a continuous basis versus when you go into a doctor's office You might be nervous and they put that blood pressure cuff on you and maybe get the wrong measurement So I I just think this type of data um, and the type of sensors that are now available to us on a daily basis Can radically alter how we view clinical outcomes in medicine.
1: What is for the for the layperson? Doing this the right way, the way that you're describing, capturing this data about people outside of the clinic walls and capturing more information, what's the the hopeful end result of that? I mean, are we developing better medicines? Are we figuring out what medicines work for which people? All the above?
0: Yeah, all of the above. I think uh, when we... Uh, can do this in the right way Um, we can you know figure out whether a medicine is working for you faster or not Um, we can figure out whether you know I I have a I have a chronic illness where there's this sort of step therapy approach to it where they watch your progression over time through a series of diaries that I keep um, and I could get better therapies faster if they could actually just observe me in real life versus you know make me keep some arbitrary diary of what was going on so hopefully it's better therapies for each person, you know, faster and, you know, more comprehensive care.
1: And, and it's probably not something that most of us outside, you know, people outside of healthcare care recognize. But the drugs that are developed today, mostly in trials in the clinic walls, you know, they're, they're proven to be safe and effective. But are they are they not proving to be as effective in the real world as people would hope? Or what is, you know, kind of what is the problem that, that we're trying to solve for?
0: Yeah, I, I, I mean, I should let Deb speak to this, but from from my perspective, um, it, it's not that uh, we believe that drugs aren't safe or effective. Um, we think that the right tailored mix of therapies for each person is the right approach, especially when you have a lot of additional data to figure out whether something is more or less effective for me versus Deb versus Amy versus Sam. Um, that just makes a, a lot of good sense. Yeah. And then the second thing is some... Uh, diseases are really difficult to diagnose there are certain diseases where it takes you know five to ten years to diagnose somebody on this disease mostly because you're hopping from one doctor to another they're asking you to keep you know diaries of your migraines they're asking you to sort of pain scale like how bad did your back hurt today it's just a really inefficient way to understand what's really going on
3: yeah population health experts um might say that um the problem we're trying to solve is we're trying to A, identify the drivers of and B, minimize the size of the gap between clinical trial efficacy and real world effectiveness. Yep. And right, I mean, you, you, you talked about that, you know, in trials, drugs and devices are, are tested to, to about whether or not they're safe and effective technically they're tested about whether or not they're safe and there is an efficacy signal under very strict inclusion criteria and protocol requirements, right? Which we then use as a surrogate for effectiveness. But the reality is they're never as effective in the trial as they are in the real world. Uh, or rather, I'm saying the opposite. Yeah, they're never as effective in the real world as they are in the trial, and and, and that's not the manufacturer's fault. I should be really clear about that. It's not the regulator's fault. It's just, but that by virtue of the fact that we don't all act the same way, and our disease doesn't all show up the same way when we're in our day to day lives over the long arc of our lives versus that snapshot of time when we're walking into a medical center for clinical trial participation. So it's just a it's just a very pragmatic gap that's there. But I think that you know one of the things that we're trying to really do is identify the drivers of that gap in terms of patient behaviors day to day. And because if you can measure it, you have a chance of changing it. You have a chance, but if you can't measure it, there's no way to reproducibly influence or change things.
1: And the two of you came to Evidation from very different backgrounds, correct? I mean, mm-hmm. Debbie you had a more traditional healthcare background. Yes. Maybe if you could tell the, our listeners, uh, yes. your background. And then, uh, and then Christine, would love to kind of juxtapose that against where you come from professionally.
3: Yeah. So my, my start in healthcare was um, I was on an NIH uh, grant for atherosclerosis as part of my Ph.D., and uh, and so it was no surprise that when I came to industry, I started out in cardiovascular medicine because my car- my, my PhD work was in cardiometabolic disease and vascular, uh, vascular disease. I ended up um, at Guidant Corporation pretty soon after it was spun out of Eli Lilly. Um, that's actually where Amy and I cross paths. Um, I stayed there for almost a decade um, and was working in very early stage R&D and sort of skunk works for the vascular business um, at Guidant. And that was on everything from, you know, drug-laden nanoparticles to um, structural heart disease and how can we affect structural heart disease through both device-based and drug-based therapies and pretty much everything in between, including, you know, early, early days of stem cell research. Um, At the time of the acquisition, I decided that it was time for me to try the startup world. Um, and so I was recruited to be, um, to start sales and marketing and reimbursement for a, a biotech company called Cardio DX, which is a molecular diagnostics company that uses peripheral blood RNA to identify coronary obstruction. Um, I did that because I specifically wanted to understand the the world of biotech business models, because I really didn't understand them and I didn't understand Did you the figure it out? Because I still model. don't understand the biotech <laughs> yeah. business model. I'm still working on that, Sam. Uh, that's that's why maybe I had to go work. I just know Kirkland the stock Digital. prices go up. That's Yeah, it. that's right, that's right. But I, I did that because I really wanted to understand all these different, types of incentive structures and product development cycles in healthcare and different parts of healthcare are really complicated. And then I ended up meeting Christine in uh, 2014, thanks to Rowan Chapman, who was running healthcare investing at GE Ventures. who ended up doing the Series A for evidation. And as you'll hear from from her background, we could not be more different in terms of our skill sets. and in, but, but yet we had a pretty identically aligned view of of what we could do as a, as a company together. And so I'll, I'll, I'm sure we'll come back Good. to that. But um, yeah. but maybe Christine can talk about her background.
0: Yeah, I, I think if you're trying to build a digital health company, you probably couldn't have two more um, people and backgrounds. Um, but my background is very much technology. I'm a technology entrepreneur. I have started and sold a couple companies in my life. Um, did some work at Microsoft in the Xbox group. Worked in venture capital for a short period of time in France, of all places.
1: I want to do that. Uh, it's more fun than doing it
0: in Oakland. <laughs> Not as many companies in France. As in, although it's getting, you know, it's getting better in Paris. Um, and uh, you know, really, um, the the company I did before this was a company that did a lot of machine learning on behavior data. So we were looking at data from the telephone network specifically, and um, looking at vast quantities of location data, call patterns, and texting patterns. And you know, you'd think you'd do all sorts of crazy, insane things with that data. And we were targeting ads. Um, and that—that's the story of many incredibly smart data people in technology. Is a lot of that brain power is being used to, you know, drive more targeted advertising, basically. Um, and so, when we sold that company, the next thought you know we had was, what if we could use some of this you know um, technology that works really well and aim it at something that we feel has more impact. Um, and so we were those naive technology entrepreneurs that just like kind of dove in uh, without really thinking much about the business model, without really thinking about the gigantic Rube Goldberg machine that is healthcare, uh, and needed some folks to turn the lights on. And that's how Rowan put us together with Deb.
1: Great. And, and again, for those just joining us, this is Sam Brash, and I'm joined by my co-host, Amy Ramundo, and you're listening to Bay Area Ventures. And I'm speaking with, or we are speaking with, Deb Kilpatrick and Christine Limke of Evidation Health. If you have a question or a comment for us, uh, lines are open. Give us a call. We're at 1- 844-WHARTON, that's 1-844-942-7866. So it's interesting because the two of you represent the, the two types of entrepreneurs' backgrounds that we often see in healthcare companies. Amy and I, you know, with KP Ventures, invest in a lot of startups in the healthcare space, and we see a lot of technologists who have come to decide that they want to do something in the healthcare space, and there's real opportunities, and then we see a lot of people who've grown up in healthcare that maybe have recognized that using data as an interesting way to have a major impact Um, but but,
2: never the two shall meet it's true
1: (laughs) i mean how you know and and please throw each other under the bus that's why we're here but
3: (laughs) how hard was
1: it to come from a very traditional traditional but a a very traditional solid impressive healthcare background and then on the flip side or the other side equally as impressive and traditional technology background and, and you guys you know were brought together were you speaking different languages at first or, you know, how did you go about trying to learn from each other and go and make the most of the combination?
3: Go ahead. I I mean, I think we still speak a different language to some degree. Um, you know, I don't, I probably, it probably took me a good uh, six months of evidation to understand what API was. Um, and, and yet I think that the reason that, you know, knock on wood we've we've done really well so far in the market is that i actually think these these distinct views of the world allows it allow us to have this very unique lens um, on the problem. In other words, when, when we look at a problem that, that a potential customer client or partner brings to us, you know, I can see all these different aspects of, of how it might be important from a, from a diagnostic or a medical device, or a therapeutic standpoint, um, or a reimbursement standpoint, right? Or all these different nuances to how, uh, diseases manifest in the body and how that's going to show up in the protocol and how that's going to be important for inclusion criteria. And Christine, by default, we'll see it differently. And I think together, over the last four years, we've begun to see it more similarly because we're learning from each other. And so we've tried to create this culture at Evidation that, you know, if you look sort of top down, there are lots of super talented, smart people from tech, and there are lots of super smart, talented people from healthcare. And does it cause tension that they're speaking different languages, you bet it does um, do they view things differently, you bet they do, but I actually think it's the secret to, to what is making us successful. Um, and I don't think that was any different than than our initial meeting I my initial thinking when I came out of the first meeting with Christine was wow together i feel like we could do something that neither one of us alone is going to do with the same amount of capital and the same amount of time in other words we're going to get further faster and do things more dramatically different together than we can separate um well we really want to know though is
2: (laughs) (laughs) when does it go wrong what's the funny story where it got lost in translation between healthcare and tech or tech and healthcare (laughs) that's what we really want to hear consents was probably the first big (laughs) You know disagreement at the company
0: maybe not the first but it was one that like sticks out to me because it's hilarious consent in technology (laughs) is that long scrolly box that you just try to shove people through like hope they don't read it just click here and just move on (laughs) um and don't pay attention to all the crazy legalese that tells everybody how they're gonna send your data out the back door and no one's gonna know the better um, just get them through, like hide everything obfuscated, et cetera. Um, and in healthcare, especially when it comes to clinical research, consent is like this, no they must understand every sentence in consent. In fact, they should be able to recite it back to you in their own words exactly what you have told them so that they get like all the things that we're going to test and do and all the data that we're going to collect and oh, by the way, we're going to tell them exactly what we're going to do with that data and why and how it's limited use, et cetera. Which is increasingly becoming the gold standard in tech now, which I hope is becoming the gold standard in tech now, which is is good. We were ahead of the curve. (laughs) Um, But that was the first time where it's like the two sides are like yelling at each other about consent, (laughs) using that same word, consent. And it's like nobody, they were just talking past one another.
1: I mean, it's interesting. I mean, the the way you two describe it, though, it makes all the sense in the world if you're going to have a healthcare technology company to have healthcare and technology people. But not a lot of the companies here, at least in the Bay Area, have that combination of, Founders, management team. Do you guys have a feeling why not? I,
3: I have a very oh. pragmatic feeling. <laughs> I oh, think yeah. there's a very don't have an opinion, reason. Just, you know. I think the pragmatic reason... Um, yeah, there's the funny reasons and the pragmatic reasons. I think the pragmatic reason is that we actually live in different ecosystems, right? Even, even in the digital age, until relatively recently, you pretty much had networks of people that were very tightly networked in all aspects of healthcare, right? You had the device people and the drug people and the biotech people and the diagnostic people. And similarly in tech, right? You had like the SaaS people and the consumer tech and the mobile and the web, right? So you have all these factions that were really tightly integrated, but never did they meet. Yeah. And, and I, I, I honestly don't know how Christine and I would have come across each other just like in our careers had, had Rowan not introduced us. I mean, maybe we would have. I don't know. But I, I, I think that there is a pragmatic reality that those networks until recently have not intersected.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. The Venn diagram is is you know not very overlapping in these two worlds. Um, I, I would say the other thing is, um, you know, when you so the, the culture at Evidation has not been easy to form and is is not easy to keep scaling, quite honestly. And one of one of the reasons, and we have to be really deliberate and work very hard at it. One of our values is challenge one another and assume good intent. And sometimes we're great at it, and sometimes we really suck at it. But the reason for that value is because you've got People who are like a players in their domains, who are used to being right all the time in their specific domain, and then you come crashing together and realize there's a lot of nuance in you know the combination, and I have to step back, check my ego at the door, and realize I could be wrong about a whole lot of my assumptions, and that's actually really hard for insanely good people on both sides of their domains to do. How
1: do you, I mean? It's interesting. It's, it's the leadership of the company what do, you, what do you do to actively make that happen or, or facilitate that because that is a big challenge to have very smart talented people recognizing that they don't necessarily know all they need to know about something and they're and they to be... go fast at the same time
3: mm-hmm. yeah i i don't think we do it perfectly all the time i mean i try to remember um for example in an all hands meeting or or in you know senior staff meetings i actually try to point out when christine and i disagree mm-hmm. because the reality is um christine and i I would say we're extremely good at coming to an understanding together, but we don't always come out of the box agreeing by any stretch, um, in part because we're informed by very different experiences and, and you know, we're, we're, we just come from different worlds, but we're pretty good at, at going behind the scenes one-on-one and very mm-hmm. quickly debating and coming to a single view. We think that's one of the things that makes us so good as, as a partnership. And I as such, people don't see us argue a lot. Yeah. And and so I have to, I and so they don't see us productively arguing a lot. And so I try to point out, you know, Christine and I actually don't agree on this point, but we're, we're choosing to do this because, and allowing them to see sort of how we make decisions as a, as, a, as a duo so that they can hopefully model some of that behavior. Because I don't expect, I don't want people to, to just by default agree. I, yep. I really don't. I mean, I, I pretty commonly tell people, I like healthy tension. I like healthy debate. I think if we're not, doing that we're not we're not you know challenging ourselves closely enough or hard enough Um, and so I try to point out by model but since they're always not always observing us model that behavior I try to point out when it has happened but you know as christine said i mean we we you know we have three values of the company and the in some ways on any even day the most important one is to make sure that we're assuming good intent because yeah. the, the debates are pretty fierce and we have extremely intelligent people at the company and i know that every company will say that right but of course ours are special
1: yeah. <laughs> you guys are special you're the most special guest we've had <laughs> I mean, but is there is there natural fiefdoms? Is it the technologists versus the healthcare people, and you're the conduit, or or have you been able, in terms of building a culture, to, to break down what normally would have been pretty siloed and have yeah. different fiefdoms? Yeah,
0: <laughs> I I think naturally there are some fiefdoms at the company, but what's different about this experience is. I feel like we we sort of like make them all go into a corner and work their stuff out. Yeah. And over time it's taught them like they can't just bounce everything up. They have to just sort of like get in a room and make some decisions on their own. Um, and so as that process has um has gone undergone over the past few years like people have been better and better at like reaching across the aisle making sure that there's understanding on both sides really exercising benefit of the doubt when somebody you know jumps on something um so it's it's definitely getting you know it's definitely getting
1: there yeah i'm just curious again i mean you 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 two represent one of the more interesting combinations in the kind of healthcare technology digital health space do you spend time talking to other younger companies, helping them understand why they need to be looking for the healthcare expertise if they're the technologists, and vice versa? And, and do people hear you?
3: I, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I, think so. Okay. I mean, I think that people people will try and pattern match to what they see as being successful, right? And yep. so. If Christine and I are out there visibly talking about the power of, of the company that we're building and the views that we think are represented by the skill sets that we're intentionally creating or building, um, I think, and building, and they see us being successful in the market, I, I think people will naturally question that. Um, and so I, for sure, when I talk to, to young companies in the digital health space, if I feel like they're not really sharp on the consumer side, or they're not really sharp on the enterprise software side, and yet that's gonna be required for them to be successful, now I'll I'll, I'll definitely say, please don't try and do this by yourself. Yeah. Like,
1: um, and then we haven't talked much, you, you mentioned Rowan and how, you know, helps bring the company together, but can you talk a little bit about how Avidation came into being? Cause it wasn't a traditional kind of, somebody with one idea, writing a business plan. Uh, so maybe if you can help us understand. Does
0: that ever happen? It does. <laughs> does it? Okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, I always say
0: ideas are are made, not born. Yeah. Um, the initial idea of a startup, I rarely see that be the thing. Um oh, It's that's always true. like the start and then you actually find the thing in the start. Um, and, and so in a way that, the, so Evidation has sort of two legs to it. Um, So the first leg was a company um, that my co-founders and I started back in 2011. I think we were part of the Rock Health Incubator. At the time, um, it was called Activity Exchange. We had started on this idea, as I mentioned before, hey, we can take a lot of this like sensor data and make sense of it for healthcare um, and help patients, you know, access, you know, things that they should need to access in order to feel better. Um, and so we started this company and, and grew it to a certain amount before we decided, you know, we actually really need some healthcare expertise in house. And and that's when we met Rowan and Deb has her own story with Rowan that was happening uh, at a similar time.
3: Yeah, I mean, I got a phone call from from Rowan in um, like late summer of 2014. And, and I was technically still a chief commercial officer at Card ADX, where GE was also an investor at the time. So she really was just calling to get my <laughs> to get my advice about the CEO <laughs> that she could think about hiring for this entity that she was going to start and fund in the new business creation effort of GE Ventures at the time. And the idea was, you know, digital era of medicine, lots and lots of products that need um, uh, evidence behind them it's probably need to be generated in a whole new way we want to start a company to do that that was that was it like there was no more real crystallization behind that but i was very um i've always been very interested in cases where you know these massive new sets of information come into healthcare specifically um, the first being non invasive imaging, the second being genomics, and I think the third we're in through the, mobi- the ubiquity of mobile and digital, um, where these massive new sets of information just fully transform the sector. Yep. And that's what I and I have known Rowan for a long time, and so I knew that was sort of at the heart of where she was where she was thinking. Um, and so we continued in this conversation. Little did she know, I had already resigned from Cardiatus. It just wasn't public yet. And so when she said, "I'm thinking of doing this. What kind of CEO should you should we hire?" I was I got, like, "I, you're I like, got a person me. for you." <laughs> PhD, I, <well>, I said <laughs> That's not too detailed? I started outlining myself. No, I said, I said, I don't know. But, you know, if, if you're going to start a CEO search, then I'll be thinking about what I'm going to do next. Maybe I'll throw my hat into the ring. Well, in the process of that, she introduced Christine to me. And in classic Rowan fashion, she was like, you guys should know each other. I think you, you should, should have just lot have a meeting in common, right? You should just have a meeting, but there's no pressure, and so she like backs away, right? And it was pretty quick after we got in a room together. You know, we're like, oh, we see what she's doing yeah. now, and <laughs> and so it was very clear diving that diving
1: venture capital, yeah, yeah,
3: <laughs> that's right. And so if you, if, it was very clear to me that if you were going to sort of revolutionize, revolutionize the way evidence was generated in the digital era, that you, you know, you better have a good solution for a technology core, and the reality is what Christine and our co-founders had built, Alessio, Luca, and, and Mickey had built was this phenomenally unique technology core. And and so the question was, could we wrap around health, a really complicated healthcare use case around that and create a company that was really special? And we felt that we could. And um, after, I don't know, a couple hours of meeting, we we, we did.
1: <laughs> and there it is. Uh, so we're going to take a quick break. Again, I'm your host, Sam Brash. I'm joined by my co-host, Amy Ramundo. Uh, stay with us as we continue the conversation with our guests this hour, Christine Lemke and Deb Kilpatrick of Evidation Health. You're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. adventures on sirius xm business radio powered by the wharton school i'm your host sam brash uh, My day job is i'm um, a senior managing director at kaiser permanente ventures joined by my co-host amy beltramundo also a managing director at kaiser permanente ventures and our guests this hour are christine lemke and deb kilpatrick of Evidation health uh, before the break we were talking a little bit about how Evidation health came into being uh, if you have any interest in asking questions of Deb or Christine, or want to add your two cents to the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866.
2: Yeah, I just wanted to pull a thread that both Deb and you and Christine mentioned. One, Deb, about the tech core and how important that was in the founding of Evidation. And then Christine, you know, I maybe you both mentioned the excitement here is that you can gather a lot more data about a person when you can go outside of the walls of either the doctor's office or the hospital. But that's a lot more data. And so separating out the, the noise from that data is got to be one of the big challenges. And how are you guys solving for that It is, I mean, it's a a massive challenge if you think about, uh,
0: you know, getting raw accelerometer, gyroscope data, location data, you know, um, voice data, speech data, we're talking about gigabytes of data per day, uh, per person, which is probably unique in, in healthcare. Um, when you talk about 365 days a year. So one of the first issues is making sure you have proper consent and making sure people understand what you're collecting and what the use of it is and making sure it's being used for positive means rather than negative means. That's like the first hurdle to overcome. Um, And then saying that you overcome those hurdles in the context of research, um, then you, you actually have had to create a Big technology platform to not just ingest that data and make sure there aren't a lot of mistakes in that data but to what we call normalize it so make the data make sense across all the different devices we're collecting it from um, a reading on your watch could be a little bit different than the reading on the phone and you have to harmonize that uh, and then you have to figure out how to combine it with clinical data to make sure you can see signal so um, when you're collecting a bunch of heart rate data and you uh, think you see arrhythmia in that heart rate data, um, you, you have to have a way to understand whether that's signal or whether that's just random spurious noise. And so you, you have to have really qualified you know, data scientists to do all that work, et cetera. And then once you've got data scientists that have worked on that for years, only then can you really design a platform that can do that well. Uh, and so the technology core isn't just about you know, the code. Um, As much as it's about the expertise that's been baked into that, because we've seen a lot of this and figured out how to design the system to normalize all the data, keep it perfectly safe and private and secure, and then make sure we're seeing true signal instead of spurious noise.
2: And Is there anything you've seen that surprised you? I mean, either a signal you didn't expect to get or a signal that you thought you'd get but didn't from a data set or, or a collection of data sets?
0: You know, it's surprisingly easy to figure out the folks who strap their, you know, Fitbit to a dog and like let it run around the yard. <laughs> um, that, that was something like new, you know, it's surprisingly easy to find the people who like take their, not a bad you know, idea take their watch <laughs> and strap it to a drill and like just round and round and round and round. <laughs> um, so that signal that we probably didn't totally anticipate seeing, that we didn't know that we could discern from, you know, a normal person. Walking around um, that's actually lights up in the data set, so all you folks out there who are thinking about doing that, we see you you're not fooling anyone you're not fooling anyone, <laughs> not fooling anyone. Um, so that that that's something that always surprises us the ingenuity of folks to you know try and um, see if they can game the system in a way um, but the the thing that we we see that we're comforted to see in fact is um, we we can see when someone's in pain we can see when um you know we, we can see when someone is maybe not feeling as well as you'd like them to feel. Um, We we can see a lot of this really rich signal in the data that can tell us someone's um, prognosis, just based on you know they have good days, they have bad days, and you can count sort of the number of good hours even and bad hours. Um, And so it just, it comforts us that there's actually really rich signal in this data that um is better than just asking someone well how did you feel the last six months how how did you do do you have any flares yeah we can just tell people
3: yeah i would say the this wasn't surprised to me for reasons that i'll mention in a minute but i would say the surprise and the flies in the face of the conventional wisdom is that all these things that we're talking about can be also done in medicare population and so we've now proven that because we've done more than one fully randomized, fully virtual digital trial um, in conditions that are fairly complex and chronic, like diabetes.
1: And, and again, so for those who are from outside of healthcare, most of you probably know Medicare is senior citizens, people over sixty-five.
3: That's right. Although you know, with every gray hair that grows in my head, Sam, I don't think of them as seniors so much as I think of as them as my people. Wise. Wow. they're wiser, More experienced. People. Yeah. And so, because if you, I, I would say even as recently as a couple of years ago, I would, I would talk, be talking about what Evidation does, like at a conference or something, and people would always say, "Oh, but you know what? These are all commercial payer patients, right? They're all young, trending younger patients." So I'm like, because old people
1: weren't using phones in their minds. Right. Well, yeah.
3: because, and I remind people that you know what? People want to FaceTime their grandkids. Yeah. They know. How how to use phones they do they know how My to use them. My mom can
2: also use Amazon.
3: Yeah they, they know <laughs> how to they know like this is a thing and you know I'm 51 years old I am 14 years away from the Medicare program and I'm pretty sure I'm going to be just as good at technology then as I am right now maybe I'll be better right and so this idea that that technology and the the uh, leveraging of technology in healthcare is only for the young is just completely false and ridiculous but we've now proven at scale that that this is true. Um and so I'm I'm not only proud of that, but I also think that it surprises some people when we say that.
1: Yeah, you know, right before the break we were talking, Christine, you're talking about how um you know Rowan uh, from GE Ventures put the two of you together, Deb, you did. Uh yeah, you know, one thing that's real interesting about Evidation is that you do have some roots in large institutions, GE and Stanford hospital or medical center as well. You know, what's it like you know, so, in the Bay Area startup world, people often think, "Oh, big companies, big institutions, they move too slowly. we can't do anything. what's it What's been the value for you of working with large institutions as you've kind of been getting the company off the ground and building it?
0: well, I, I guess one recent example that's even more recent than G e um is Santa So Santa Ventures did what is what's called our series B one uh, last year where they put a bunch of money in the company.
1: and Santa for people who don't know, is
0: a large pharmaceutical company. And um, alongside that investment that they made, um, they did a large commercial deal with the company, and sort of taught us how they would, you know, how they would use the technology within their business to improve, you know, improve lives for patients, really. Um, and so that w- that was helpful to us um, on a number of levels. It obviously in healthcare, credibility of your company is is increasingly important, especially when you're dealing with, you know, patient lives. Um, and so to have the backing of one of the largest biopharmaceutical companies in the world and then to also show you how, you know, teach you how they would use your system and your technology, I think was quite invaluable. Um, and then GE Ventures in Stanford before that not only add a lot of credibility to a company that nobody knew at the time. Um, but, you know, it was easy for them to open the doors to lots of the provider systems we need to partner with in order to run some of our studies. So uh, I think, you know, we've managed to extract a lot of value out of our investment partners.
1: And why, from your, you know, why do these big institutions not try to do these things themselves? I mean, you know, you know, we in the Bay Area, we've got, it's all startups all the time, everyone's trying to build companies. But in, in other parts of the country, it's not a lot of young entrepreneurial companies. from your experiences why does it make sense even for large institutions that know they want to do something to to support and partner with a smaller company to do it
3: i mean i think it's it's think it's like anything else when you're talking about white potential white space um inside big companies and choosing whether you're going to play there directly or invest there or whatever you're going to do it is, it is a, a distraction from the core potentially. Right. Um, B it means that you've got to make a decision to make incremental investment or cannibalize the existing and resources that you have on your company. So these are all hard choices for very big, very successful companies who are public largely, um, in managing their stock price. Right. Um, and so I think that is, that's, Part of the answer. I think the other part of the answer is: Look, what, what we're doing here is 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 an, is a leveraged, heavily specific, um, and advanced use of technology that really had not been done before. I mean, really, right? When we went out and started talking about this in the market, I think we were first in market. I think we were first in a new market. That we were also helping to develop. There are others now, right? In in this um, singing off the same songbook, and uh, which is a very validating and vindicating for us, but b it also reminds you that a lot of this innovation like any other innovation is going to happen in in the smaller company sphere because it's it's a of a risk profile at the time that you start the company that it is perhaps too risky for somebody that's a large public institution Um, that that's that's just sort of my general view of it i think that you know if i if i stand back and imagine that i'm one of the people making resource decisions in those companies um you know look evadation started uh you know in the embodiment that we're describing in in 2014 this was still fairly early in the digital health ecosystem, right? It wasn't clear yet how much money was going to continue to go into the sector. Well, a lot has gone into the sector since then. So it's it's moved quite fast, quite, quite in, a, in a short period of time. Um, and so I think that it's easier to sort of imagine that other big companies could do this now perhaps than it was four years ago. Um, but make no mistake i mean what we're doing is is sophisticated and a distraction for anybody trying to do it if it's not your core business whether it's a small company or a large company
1: yeah we're all nodding along um again for those just joining us i'm sam brash my co-host is amy ramundo and you're listening to bay area ventures and we're speaking with deb kilpatrick and christine Limke of Evidation health
2: you guys alluded to a point that i think is actually probably a big point now both in tech and healthcare which is Patients owning their own data. And I'd like you to talk a little bit more about that because it's pretty central to how you guys are organized. So, you know, how have you thought about that initially? And then how do you see that both applying now to the tech world, there's an element of that, and then also to healthcare where, you know, the big EMR, electronic medical records, you know, is, is a lot of a big topic for lots of different folks. Well,
0: um... Maybe, maybe I'll take take this one and then you can fill in holes that I've, I've left. Um, first of all, what we aren't talking about is blockchain.
3: Um, is that- yes. Christine, Christine right? wins yeah. the bingo yeah. for
1: bringing blockchain into our conversation.
3: We haven't said crypto either, just for the record. Oh, I went just second. Did Getting to that.
0: <laughs> okay. Um, but but secondly, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna take I'm gonna be a little bit nuanced about patients owning data. First of all, we call them individuals, not patients, because in our world, in a continuous um, in a continuous data world, uh, people are patients sometimes, and they're individuals all the time. Um, so we we use a little bit different nomenclature to describe our relationship. Um, we, we call them individuals. They own and control, which is very important, their data. Owning is actually hard. Once your data goes out the door. Um it's not like you can call up people and go, hey, give give it back or I'll rent it to you <laughs> or you know, it's not like it can accrue. It's not like the deed of your house. There's no, you know, central authority that says, Oh, you can have access to that, but you can, et cetera, right now. It just doesn't exist. Um in our world, we are that central authority for some of the studies that we're running and some of the data that we're collecting on a continuous basis in a way. We are that authority that says Um, Sam, you uh, give your data to this researcher so that they can combine it with some other data and try to understand, you know, signals. Maybe they want to understand how voice and speech affects cognitive decline. And so we're going to ask you permission to anonymize that data, put it in a repository for research access. That's great. And then when it's done, we're going to explode that repository. Like you can't, they can't take it out. They can't keep it, et cetera. And so we're very serious about this construct of like getting as close to ownership as we possibly can. And by the way, Sam, we're going to compensate you for that. So we're very serious about it, but we also recognize that there's some limitations to it, and and so it's not just about owning, but it's about having full control. Sam, if you want to delete that data out of that repository, you can delete that data out of the repository. Nobody else can have it. Um, Sam, if you uh, want to delete your data out of our entire system, goodbye. It's it's like gone. It is irrecoverable. You know, you can download it. You can move it to our competitor. We don't care. It's it's yours, and you control it. So we're we're just very very serious about this concept. Um, it's not a concept. It's a reality for us.
1: Yeah. And then, you know, so that's that's the right thing to do. But I'm imagining there were business reasons to, to want to own that data yourselves. Or is it always so clear that you couldn't build a sustainable business? It is business?
0: crystal clear.
1: Yeah. And in
0: fact, the, the biggest fights we ever get to at the company um, are when our customers say, no, we bought that data. We want to own it. And then your customers start, are the pharma
1: like, companies that yeah, are running the trials. They're
0: researchers at pharma companies running trials. They're, you know, other folks in the ecosystem who are trying to run like digital health trials, et cetera. And so then it gets very contentious like how we construct that in the safest way possible but more importantly how we communicate that back to the individuals who have the data hey this company wants to own this data it's going to be fully de-identified and anonymized to the best of our you know capability um, but here here's the deal and you take it or leave it
1: you know, one of the areas that you, know, you guys have published on you've done some recent work is chronic pain and, and you know, it builds off what i think you were mentioning earlier that. By seeing people outside the clinic walls, you actually can get a feel for how they're doing at that time. Can you tell us a little bit more about what what the opportunity and the need is in chronic pain, and why Evidation can kind of play a role there?
3: So I think um, if we if we stand back and and think about what we really understand about chronic pain. Like people do all sorts of research to try and understand the mechanism of action of chronic pain, right? And there's all sorts of neural mechanisms of actions and central nervous system mechanisms of action. And and we actually do understand a lot about those things. Of course, there's a lot we don't understand, but we understand almost nothing about what all those mechanisms of action translate to in terms of patient behavior. And in this case, patient behavior is exacerbated and driven by pain signals, but it also exacerbates masturbates pain signals, right? Um, Meaning if if I'm having a migraine, it's well known that I'm probably gonna lay down in in a dark room, right? I mean, that's one of the patterns of behavior that we know is caused by, by migraine pain. At the same time, I can have a behavior that causes chronic pain by lifting heavy things and not lifting with my legs and right, and and, and holding my back in the wrong area. So, the it, pain is this really interesting condition where it hits all of those, and we all we know almost nothing about it, and yet it is arguably one of the most serious. Yeah, public health issues in the United States today, yeah, right? I mean, how we're, how we're medicating it? Yeah,
1: I mean, just for people who maybe aren't as familiar with the space, we talk about chronic pain. That that is that is the opioid epidemic the, in many ways is. in our society. And
3: and and do we understand the the relationships between how people are dosing up or dosing down um, relative to pain cycles? I don't think we understand that. Not not in the context of our daily lives, right? But imagine imagine if we did right? Would would we be better at dosing people? Would be better at at therapeutic selection? Probably so. And so these things may seem like really hard to nail down, but step one is like quantify pain, yeah. right?
1: Other than to Christine's earlier point, having you say six months later, yeah. what was your pain like over the last couple That's right.
3: months? So so it, is, it brings up, so like for people that are from healthcare, like recognize that for decades in healthcare, one of the reasons that, or one of the ways that we captured patient symptoms in areas like pain, but in many other conditions too, is with patient diaries. We literally had patients write out a memory of a symptom or a memory of an episode that might've happened a month ago. It might've happened a week ago, maybe it happened a day ago, but it certainly didn't happen in the moment. Right, and and so we can all agree that that is a, a a loose at best characterization of what really happened. Has no idea of frequency that's really real. You have no idea of the the length of time of that episode. Like you really, it's just it's just very messy. But it was the best we had. Now imagine that you can have a frictionless capture of patient diaries all the time, right? Through activity data, through voice data, through all kinds of well, and, pattern data. Yeah, maybe if
1: you can explain that a little bit more. So if you're if people aren't filling out a diary. You know, they're using their phone, but what is it that is capturing information on their pain?
0: Yeah, in in our world or the way we think about it, um, a lot of folks are wearing devices that help with that. So it's collecting heart rate data, accelerometer, gyroscope data, some location data, et cetera. Um, So lots of different activity data. And eventually, like when you just speak into your phone, it's amazing how much signal your voice has like your voice intonation, the speech that you're using. These are little ticks that you can't track or perceive yourself over time, but a computer certainly when can.
1: When you hear me whining, you know that something's wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's right, you know, that's right. Whining. Your, your yeah.
0: voice will change in surprising ways based on how you're feeling. But even more so than just characterizing that um, that feeling or that condition, if only we could figure out, th- th- this is why I love pain, is because if you go and ask somebody who's that, suffering, that sounds says, bad. Says, yeah, it sounds says bad. Says, bad. The, per- says yeah. the person who has a one-month-old so who's it, just experiencing it, exactly pain right you know, <laughs> now. Remember, baby cries, it's really loud, it's really easy to tell. Um, but, uh, <laughs> lots you know, of signal. There, lots of signal. But the reason why I'm so excited about this project is there's so much, um, maybe, it's not exactly pseudoscience, but sort of theory about what triggers pain. And until we have like an objective passive continuous measure of pain there's no way to detangle what the triggers of pain are and if you could figure out what the triggers of pain are you don't need opioids (laughs) you don't need
2: you know some of this medication and are you also asking uh, the individuals that are participating, what they're experiencing, yes. and they're correlating that then yep. with uh, those signals as well. So yeah, there's a bunch of ways to, yeah,
0: exactly. So th- there's a bunch of ways to label the pain episodes so that we can understand the signals that led up to it.
3: Okay. I mean, the, the analog to this um, in the genomic era is we're using molecular biology to phenotype and identify cohorts of patients who might be super responders to certain kinds of therapy, right? Um, Imagine that we can phenotype and identify cohorts of pain, migraine, back pain, claudication pain, et cetera, et cetera, um, and that there are subtypes based on their digital signals or patterns of what they're experiencing. And that if you could see those and they were reproducible, which to some degree we believe they certainly will be um, over time, then you can have a better way of identifying, to Christine's point, who shouldn't even have an, an opioid prescription yep. versus who really needs one and maybe what better dose would be appropriate for them.
1: So as you look at, I mean, you've been building out evidation for four or five years now. Mm-hmm. If you look five years in the future, what, what is evidation? What, what do you hope to have built by then?
3: So today we have um, two and a half million people that are connected to us on our platform across the U.S. Um, At any given moment, they are uh, in different types of protocols and virtual studies and registries across different therapeutic areas under informed consent. Imagine that in five years, that number is bigger. Right, it's going from two and a half to something considerably bigger than that. But more importantly, imagine that as we, as a company, get better and better at identifying links between behavior and outcomes, we can actually build these populations for use in virtual research um, with intention around which ones are going to be most suited for behavior-driven trials, or to identify behaviors which will affect the outcomes of trials. I think that's. I think that's part one. I think part two is. Um, as those as that population grows um, on the evidation platform and as healthcare gets more sophisticated in its relationships with patients in the digital era right now there is no continuity really between me if i'm in a clinical trial and me if i'm on a drug outside of a clinical trial but maybe there should be maybe there should be a continuous relationship as i'm all along that journey of my healthcare. As that particular therapeutic is tested, is approved, is now in the post-market setting. And as we think about the future of value-based care, I think that continuity is going to be critical because that continuity is going to provide a baseline for the definition of value of that product. That's my view.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I have a slightly simpler view, probably, because <laughs> this that, is how this works. This yeah. is how we yeah. always do it. It did. could be five years out. It could be 10 years out. Blockchain. But, yeah, <laughs> blockchain. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, just to, today, we have to call our doctor. In five years, why shouldn't our doctor just call us? Yeah. Um, and it, it's that simple to me, so.
3: By the way this is how this always works yeah. i always have some like really long elaborate complicated <laughs> explanation that that you know is was very obtuse and then christine's like yeah that's all cute
1: Th- this, this, is this is what really, she meant this
3: is what she really means so. though this, this, this is why it works this is
1: why it works <laughs> yeah, you, know? exactly. you you i won't say dumbed it down you, you simplified <laughs> it for some of us uh again i want to thank you both very much for joining us um it was a pleasure having you on the show
3: it's our pleasure thanks sam and amy so
1: if people want to learn more about evidation What should they do?
3: Uh, Evidation.com, at Evidation on Twitter.
1: You're on the internet? (laughs) (laughs) We are. We're on the interweb. (laughs) And could people actually sign up or find a way to participate in clinical studies?
0: absolutely. Go to myachievement.com.
1: All right, myachievement.com. And they can be part of this growing population of people that are capturing information uh, about themselves to help advance healthcare. Amy, thank you very much for co-hosting this hour.
2: Very fun. Thank you, I appreciate
1: it. Uh, For those, again, out there, uh, please stay with us after the break. On the next hour, we'll be joined by Anya Sheese. Anya is going to talk to us about the Healthcare Venture Capital Fund that she co-founded called Healthy Ventures. Again, I'm Sam Brash, Amy Ramundo is my co-host, and you're listening to Bay Area Ventures on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111.
3: For more guest
0: interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights Podcast on iTunes and Google Play.